So we find ourselves in John's Gospel, chapter 2, and, and we've been looking at uh, the, the first chapter, <clears throat> and it was really an epilogue, an introduction to his Gospel, and now he begins to get into the public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've made our way through the introduction, and we've seen his relationship to God, uh, Christ's relationship to God in all things, his reason for coming into the world, his revelation of God. And then we saw how he called his disciples last week, and um, we looked at all that. And today we find ourselves in John chapter 2, and we want to read the first 12 verses. So I'd ask in honor of God's word, if you would stand along with me, And just as I read this text for us, John writes, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Verse 7, Jesus said to his servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw out some and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now became wine. And he did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And the disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Father, we ask that you would bless this text as we read it to our minds and our hearts. Help us to apply the truths that are here in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. There's five things here I want us to look at. You have the outline there, hopefully. There's five things that were revealed in this story of changing water to wine. It seems to me that most of the interest that American Christians have in this passage is whether or not this condones them taking a little snort of wine once in a while. (laughs) Uh, We're going to talk about that, but... First of all, we want to understand this particular story and this first miracle that Jesus performed here on earth. And the first thing I want us to see here, the first point in our our text is really found in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2 of the the Gospel of John. Uh, And the point is this, the marriage in Cana revealed that Christ had a strong commitment to public weddings. He had a strong commitment to public weddings. This marriage was held, it tells us, in Cana. This is a very insignificant town. If you blinked, you'd miss it. Uh, It's about five miles north of Nazareth, another insignificant town. Uh, There's not much there. 
There's not much of value in these, these two towns. A lot of poor people live in these areas of Israel. And the marriage in Cana, it revealed really the strong commitment of our Lord that he, and, and the commitment that he had to public weddings. And the reason I bring this up is it seems like we're getting away from this. The Bible says here that it was on the third day. And you say, well, what is that? Um, it's probably the third day after perhaps they had the interview and had the statements with Nathaniel that we talked about last week. Uh, Cana, by the way, is only mes- mentioned here in this passage and also in chapter 21, verse 2. And in chapter 21, verse 2, it tells us that Nathaniel was from Cana in Galilee. So perhaps this wedding was in his home. Doesn't say that, but we don't know. There's a lot of conjecture about that. But the mother of Jesus was there, it says. And yet, notice, as you look at the text, Jesus and his disciples were invited, it says. Notice it doesn't say that Mary was invited. But she was there. As a matter of fact, she was most likely part of those who were serving at the wedding. It's the mother of Jesus who speaks to the servants, if you look at the text. It's the mother of Jesus who's involved in the wedding preparation, which maybe that means she's a friend of the family. I mean, after all, she only lived five miles down the road. We don't know who the family is. It doesn't tell us. The Bible doesn't give us any names at all. And by the way, the day of the wedding was on Wednesday. You say, well, where do you see that there? Well, if you do a little research, you'll find that in the Jewish culture, in that time, Jewish weddings, if you were a virgin, you had your wedding on Wednesday. That's what they did. If you're a widow, you have your wedding on Thursday. And if there's anything else, you don't have a wedding, okay? It's just, it's just the way it was. Uh, so I put that in there. Uh, rabbis had an interesting saying about weddings. They said, without wine, there's no joy at weddings. That was their, the saying they would say. Now, there's only two kinds of beverages back then, really. I mean, main beverages, and that is water and wine. The water in that day was normally is something you would drink most likely every day, but not always, because if you've ever traveled to the Middle East, you realize that sometimes the water is not safe to drink. It's not pure. It's not good. It has to be processed first. And so it was customary on special occasions to have wine. Always at a wedding you had wine in the the Jewish culture, always. Water was never taken Drink, drunk at a Jewish wedding. You always drank wine. The water was always there, as we can see here, it was there, but it wasn't for drinking, it was for what they call purification rites. And you had to ceremonially wash your hands before you could even eat of the marriage supper at the marriage ceremony. And by the way, this wasn't just a little dinner, this was a feast. And the, the marriage ceremony and the, the, the feast, by the way, particularly could last up to seven days. Think about that one, those of you who have been married. <laughs> How would you like to have a reception for seven days? It was a tremendous expense to the family. 
Tremendous expense. It was a major item that any family had to take care of. Now notice, the Bible says here that Jesus and his disciples were invited, possibly because Mary is a friend of the family and was serving at the wedding, and this would be kind of a, a test to the family, because if you know anything about fishermen, they have a pretty good appetite. So there, he's inviting uh, Jesus and all the, the disciples who mostly were fishermen, and the financial resources of that family was probably uh, stressed at this point. But Jesus and his disciples were in, invited, and at those kind of uh, ceremonies, there was always a lot of guests people knew. Remember, this is a small town. If you grew up in a small town and somebody's getting married, you know everybody's coming to the wedding, right? That's just the way it works. But did you know that in Jewish law, this was law, by the way, in their culture, if your neighbor invited you uh, to their wedding and you provided, and they provided you a wonderful feast, guess what? Jewish law said when they got married, when somebody in their family got married, they had to invite you. And they had to at least provide equal amount of food. This was in the law. It was a legal requirement. And so there was kind of this keeping up, you know, with the, with the Joneses, you might say, or in this case, the Bernsteins or whoever, Bernsteins, whoever they are. But, you know, as you look at this, you found Jesus was invited. And certainly the natural reason would be Mary was being part of the, the wedding preparation there, and it indicated that she was a friend of the family. But I wonder if there's maybe something else here intended for us, because I think maybe we should ask ourselves, when we have weddings, do we invite Jesus? Have we invited Jesus into our marriage? That's a very important thing to think about. It's not just two people, if you're believers. The Bible says it's three. Christ is in the midst of you. And we know that his spiritual presence is important. And it seems that we have to say a little bit about public ceremonies. You know, in Deuteronomy 19.15, the law says this, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. Sometimes when I have the privilege of marrying a couple, they'll repeat their vows, and I'll do this, and I'll do that, and then I'll turn to the congregation. And I'll tell the congregation, will you <laughs> hold them accountable? And they respond, we will. See, that's really what's going on here. Because these weddings involved a lot of people in the time of the Lord. It was costly to the family. And you know what? If they uh, ran out of wine, when you read commentaries, they say, well, the family was just really, really poor. We don't know that to be true. It doesn't say that. They lived in a poor area, so it may be true. But usually at these kind of weddings, more people came than what was expected. And by the way, Jesus requoted Deuteronomy 19.15 in Matthew 18.16 when he said, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. And so it's good when we get married to have a public ceremony. I think it's, it's important. Um, but if you would have run out of wine, that would have been a tremendous disgrace, a shame to the family. I mean, you could run out of food, but if you ran out of wine, that was bad. That was just really bad. And so, you know, the, the lesson was you never run out of, of wine. But here you have this marriage in Cana, and it reveals the strong commitment of our Lord to public weddings. 
And today, a lot of people are down on marriage ceremonies. Well, I don't want to have a big, big ceremony. I don't want anybody there. I'm just going to run off to Vegas and get hitched, you know. Um, but I think that it's important to do that in front of, especially if you're a believer, in front of a church, in front of other believers who will be holding you accountable in your marriage. Um, you look back at the Old Testament and you see, for example, with Boaz and Ruth, when they were married, it says there was a great crowd of people and they shouted out at their wedding, we are witnesses. <laughs> I mean, think if you had that at every, witness, uh, every, at every wedding. Everybody, when the wedding was over, we are witnesses of what you just did here today. You know what? Don't even think about breaking up. Don't even think about that D word, divorce, because we're witnesses and we're going to hold you accountable. See, that's the whole idea here. In a world of insufficient commitment and weak vows, may God help us to understand the importance of public ceremony. Now, some people carry it a little too far and they go into debt and, you know, it's, it's more on the party rather than the commitment kind of a thing. You've got to be guarded about that. But there's nothing wrong with having a, matter of fact, I think it's good to have a public ceremony for a wedding and to do it before your brothers and sisters in Christ so that you can be held accountable before them and before God. Matthew 19.6, Jesus said, What God has joined together, let what? No man separate. So that's how serious the Lord takes uh, the commitment of marriage, the ceremony of marriage. So he had a strong commitment to it. Secondly here, we see in verses 3 to 5, the mother of Jesus revealed her simple confidence in her son. Now remember, Jesus is probably around 30 years of age here, and he's been raised by Mary, been raised by Joseph. And this is one of the most wonderful stories about Mary, really, in the Bible. The mother of Jesus revealed her simple confidence in who her son was. Look at verse 3. It says, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. This is very common in Jewish culture. If a mother has a need, usually she didn't run to the husband, she ran to her son. That was just how it played out. Verse 4, and Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. A lot of people look at that text and they say, oh, how, how disgraceful look at jesus is treating his mother dishonorably no actually he wasn't in our culture when we read it in english that's what it looks like that it looks like wow that's a rude thing to do but it's really not and i'd like to point out a couple things here and finally she just says to the servants do whatever he tells you to do the first thing is the reasoning of mary look at she looks at this situation she's kind of in charge of of providing this this refreshments for all these people. She's been asked by the family to oversee this, apparently. And they don't have any wine. There's no more wine. And one of the reasons that Mary said what she said is they have no wine. She has been helping with the wedding. She's embarrassed. And something needs to be done. And she probably feels very sensitive about the family. Man, I can't believe they gave me this responsibility. We don't have any more wine. And she turns to Jesus and his disciples, and she's probably thinking, hey, you guys go run to the next village. Go to Nazareth, see if you can find some wine. That's probably what she's in her, is in her heart. Get something done. 
And by the way, she's already kind of raised Jesus. And the Bible says that, you know what, uh, that Mary said that, you know what, Jesus, you told me a lot of things and I've kept these things, Lord, in my heart. I think she understood a lot about who Jesus was. I really do. Um, you know, we sing that song, Mary, Did You Know, at Christmas time. I think Mary knew. I really do. Uh, the, the Bible says Mary's pondered these things in her heart that the Lord told her about his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I know you're the Son of God. I know you're the Messiah. You're 30 years old. You got these guys running around who are fishermen here. They came to eat all the food. We're out of wine. Call your disciples and get something done. Go for it, Jesus. This is the opportunity. Do something now. I don't want to be shamed. I don't want the family to be shamed. They have no wine. Notice she didn't go to the bridegroom. She didn't go to the parents. She went to the son, her son, and said they have no wine. It's an opportunity for you to do something here, Jesus. And this shows us our, the relationship of Jesus to his mother. A lot of people get this mixed up when he says they're a woman. We look at that and we go, that's strange. Why would he call his mom woman? This is not a derogatory term. It's a very respectful term. It emphasizes a very important point. And he responded to her as the son of God, not the son of Mary, because that's what he was. Why didn't he say mother? He said woman. woman. And by the way, this is not disrespectful. Jesus would never have treated his parents disrespectfully. He was God. He was sinless. He was perfect. He couldn't have. It's unusual, but it is a respectful term. And what he's saying here is he's saying he's responding as the Son of God, not as the Son of Mary. And you look at that phrase, what does your concern have to do with me? What does this have to do with me, woman? Literally, in the Greek language, here's what that says. It says, what to me and to you? That's what it says. What to me and to you? And it indicates kind of a, a difference of opinion, a divergence of thought. That phrase troubles a lot of people. It almost sounds rude of Jesus to say that. But really, it, it just means what to me and to you. He's basically saying, he doesn't call her mother, he calls her woman, which probably immediately startled her a little bit. But what he's telling her is, hey, we have a difference of thought here. We're coming at this from a different angle. You're not thinking straight. <laughs> You're not thinking with my timing. You're not thinking with my plan, with my purpose. You're thinking in terms of your own purpose. Mary, don't we do that a lot? I appreciate what you're trying to do here, Mary, but he says, this is not my timing. It's not my timing. Have you ever noticed that God does things on his own time schedule? He has his own time. We don't get to order God around like some people believe. See, Mary was just trying to help the Lord out a little bit. We have done the same thing, haven't we? We would have done the same thing, for sure, if that was the situation we were in. She was just trying to help. And Jesus said, woman, we, have, we were coming at it from different 
angles here. We're not on the same page. We're not on the same wavelength. And this brings us to the third thing here, the reference to my hour has not yet come in verse 4. What did he mean by that? Jesus frequently said my my time or my hour has not yet come. Turn over just a couple pages to John 7. John 7 and look at verse 6. Now here he's speaking he's speaking to his his brothers. Yes, Jesus had brothers and sisters. <laughs> Maybe you were raised in the church like I was. Oh no, Mary was a perpetual virgin. No she wasn't. She had brothers, she had sons and daughters. Other than Jesus. Jesus was the first. And in John chapter 7 verse 6. He's speaking to his brothers. And he says hey my time has not yet come. And he's saying this to his brothers. Who by the way did not believe in him. They didn't believe in him. Verse 10. Joseph married Mary, after Jesus was born, and they had children. They had brothers and sisters. Mark chapter 6, verse 3, tells us this. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and, 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 and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. <laughs> they didn't appreciate who he was i mean you can kind of get that can't you you have siblings think if you grew up with with a sibling who was god (laughs) who never did anything wrong you know it's always perfect in every way i mean i can see where that would rub you a little wrong you know you get tired of that oh jesus yeah right he's always right um but it says there his brothers didn't believe him and he says in verse six my time has not yet come but your time John 7, 6, is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it and that its works are evil. Verse 8, you go up to the feast, and Jesus says, I'm not going up to this feast, for my time is not yet fully come. That once again, they didn't understand that. They wanted Jesus to do what they wanted to do. And he said, no, it's not my time. Or John chapter 3. 7 verse 30, if you look down just a couple verses, it says they were seeking to arrest him and no one laid a hand on him because why? His hour had not yet come. God sets his own schedule. Or over in John chapter 8, just a page to the right, verse 20, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Look at verse 12, or chapter 12, verse 23 of John. Something changes. Now we're here at the Passover season in chapter 12 of John, the final week where Jesus is going to die. Over three years since John chapter 2 has passed. So he's not 30 anymore, he's probably 33, something like that. And here in John chapter 12, verse 23, look at what we read. And Jesus answered them, and he said, The hour has come. He changes it up for the Son of Man to be glorified. Down in verse 27 of the same chapter, John 12. Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. 
Or John 13, 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come. Or John 16, verse 32. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come, he says. Or John 17, 1. Jesus has spoken these words. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. For a long time, he said, the hour has not yet come. Has not yet come, over and over again. It's interesting, the first reference to this statement was given to his mother. My time has not yet come. But the last reference was given to his heavenly father. Just kind of an interesting fact. To his mother, he said, my hour has not yet come. To his heavenly father, he said, the hour has come. It's a matter of timing. Now, go back over to John chapter 2. And let's look at the response. What is Mary's response to this? In verse 5, and, 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 and his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. See, she obviously realizes her son is dealing with her differently. She's not going to stand there and argue with him. The Bible says that Mary was what? Blessed among women. That's what the Bible says. That she was blessed among women. But Mary was only a woman. Let me be very clear. She had no deity. Luke one twenty eight. it says, Blessed are you among women. It does not say, Blessed are you above women. It says among women. And by the way, if you're wondering, Jesus, Mary, the Bible says Mary herself needed a Savior. In Luke chapter 1, verse 47, Mary herself cries out. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in what? God, my Savior. She needed a Savior just like we needed a Savior. She was a sinner just like we are sinners. The Bible never said, blessed are you above women. Blessed are you among women. And she truly is blessed to have, be the mother of the Son of God. And here Jesus said as though to help us out through all time, hey, uh, don't exalt my mother above me. Don't you dare do that. Jesus is God. Mary is not. Should we honor Mary? Definitely. As a mother of our Savior, definitely we honor Mary. Is Mary a testimony to all of us of her humility, of her honor, or praise to her Lord? Yes. Did Mary rejoice in God, her Savior? Yes. Was Mary immaculately conceived? No. The Bible does not teach that. Be careful what you do with Mary. Should we pray to Mary? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. The Bible never tells you to pray to Mary. By the way, Mary's name is never really even mentioned by John. He always calls her the mother of God or the mother of Jesus. It's almost as though in this story we learned the real issue. 
Don't listen to what other people, whether they be religious leaders or church leaders, tell you. Read the Bible for yourself. And in Luke chapter 2, what do you read? Look down at, at back to, or, uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 41. Luke chapter 2, verse 41. This is an interesting story about Jesus. It's an account when he was only 12 years old. And it tells us a little bit about his upbringing. In Luke chapter 2, verse 41, it says, Now his parents went to Jerusalem, that would be Mary and Joseph, every year for the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12, some of you young people listen to that, he was only 12, <laughs> they went up according to the custom. And when the feast had ended, they were returning. And the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. This is very common. Think about it. all these people who are coming to Jerusalem for the feast. And you know what? You have a kind of an entourage with you. Because you don't want to be out on these roads at night by yourself. So you have several people with you in kind of a caravan. It would be very easy to overlook someone missing. Doesn't make them bad parents. They were probably thought, oh, Jesus is in the back of the crowd playing with the rest of the kids, throwing rocks. Or who, who knows what he's doing? But he wasn't. He stayed in Jerusalem. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and their acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they panicked. <laughs> I'm sure. Wow, we lost the Son of God. <laughs> I mean, they return to Jerusalem and they're searching for him frantically. Have you ever been lost as a child? Do you know the feeling? Jesus didn't have that feeling. He wasn't lost. He was doing exactly what the Father wanted him to do. But if you've ever lost a child, you know the feeling. And that's what Joseph and Mary had. How did we lose him? Where is he? Is he injured? Is he safe? Many, many, a lot of concern. They were searching for him. And look, they, they searched to him. It says, after three days they found him. Think about that. Your child's missing. For three days they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Remember, he's only 12. He's only 12. Verse 47, and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Kind of chewed him out. Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, verse 49, Why were you looking for me? I wasn't lost. Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. I mean, I think if I would have been lost for three days and my parents found me and I responded with, why are you looking for me? I'd probably get smacked across the face. You know, or get spanked or something. There'd be some form of punishment there. They didn't understand what was going on. In verse 51 it says, And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was, look, submissive to them as his parents. And it says, And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. 
Verse 52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. See, I believe at 12 years old, somehow Mary, through the Lord, through the Holy Spirit, whatever it was, she got the message. <clears throat> Jesus said one day, I must be about my father's business. She understood that. And he's at 12 years old, he's saying, hey, I'm already here for the purpose of the Father. I'm not here for your purpose, Mary, but I'll submit to you as my parent. See, Mary knew all about this, and now, come all the way to the age of 30, <laughs> beginning his public ministry back in John chapter 2, she again hears from her son, and he says, you know what, we're on, the different, we're on different pages again. <laughs> Sorry, there's a difference here, divergence of thought between me and you, woman, my hour has not yet come. Thank you for what you're trying to do, but it isn't the right time. And how does Mary respond? Does she say, well, I've never been talked like that before. How dare you speak to your mother that way? I'm going to tell Joseph. No. Get this straightened out. Wait till your dad gets home. No, <laughs> she didn't say that. What does she do? I love what she does, and we should do what Mary did. Look at what she says. She said to the servants, whatever he, does, whatever he tells you to do, just do it. Whatever he says, just do it. Because I know who he is. Whatever he says, do it. I don't know what he's going to do, but I'll tell you this, he's in charge. I'm not. And he just let me know. <laughs> Whatever he says to do, do it. You know what? You don't need anything more to understand as you walk out of this church this morning. Nothing. You just need to understand what the Lord wants you to do and do it. That's all that matters in life. That will change your life. That will transform your life. Whatever comes up this week, whatever he says to you, just do it. Just do it. Well, I'm not sure I really under. Just do it. <laughs> well, I, I got to know a little more. I don't know if I'm supposed. Just do it. See, lordship demands obedience. It demands obedience. When we call Jesus our Savior, our Lord... We need to understand whatever he says, we need to do it. That should be the motto, not for a sneaker, but for the Christian life. Amen. Whatever he says to me, I'm going to do it. What a testimony that is. Think about it. Well, the third thing that was revealed here, we mentioned the marriage in Cana, revealed the strong commitment of our Lord to public weddings. Secondly, we noticed that the mother of Jesus revealed the simple confidence we should all have that same confidence in the ability of Jesus Christ. Well, thirdly, the method of Jesus revealed the supernatural circumstances of this miracle. This is pretty amazing. In verse 6 to 8 of chapter, John chapter 2, <clears throat> the method of Jesus reveals the supernatural circumstances of this miracle. This was not sleight of hand. 
This isn't like the word of faith teacher saying, oh, look, I'm going to grow your leg and, you know, all the antics they use to try to create a miracle. It's really not a miracle. It's just a sleight of hand. It's deception. It's a trick. This is no trick, as a lot of people accuse who do not believe the Bible. Look carefully at verse 6. And I bring two things here before you that clearly show that Jesus was protecting the possibility of anyone misunderstanding what he was doing here as a miracle. First of all, look at the size of the water pots. The size of the water pots. There were 20 to 30 gallons each. One would be the size of, of these, these water pots that he used. Um, they were made of what? What's it say? Stone. Rock. Hewn out of rock. According to the manner of purification of the Jews, they have these ceremonial cleansing pots still over there in Israel. And you've ever tried to move one, even an empty one, they're pretty heavy. They're pretty, pretty heavy. And you fill it up with 20 to 30 gallons of water, you're not going to move it. <laughs> you're just not going to move it. It's like a barrel. The Greek uses this term only in this text, nowhere else, um, as far as measuring. It's often translated measure two or three, three measures. One of those measuring units is eight to nine gallons. And that's why it says 20 to 30 gallons in a lot of the English texts. That's exactly right. They vary in size, but for the most part, that's approximately the size of these pots. And there's 20 to 30 gallons of water in a pot. And Jesus said, make sure, fill it up to the brim. And so they, everyone would know, especially the servants, that it was full. Nobody's going to be moving that pot anywhere. Nobody's going to be bringing a, a, a giant pot of wine out and, and kind of changing it with the pot of water, saying, oh, look at this. No, there's no sleight of hand here. Well, secondly, you see the servants who participate here the servants get involved in it. And this is very clever in a reverential sense. It's, it's clever how the Lord did this. Neither he nor his disciples touched anything. So nobody could say, oh, they, they tampered with it. They did something. Nope. They didn't do anything. The servants did who were working at the wedding. And it was Mary who said to the servants what she did in verse 5. Verse 5, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he says. And then in verse 7, it tells us that they filled them up to the brim. It's the servants of verse 7 who filled them up. It wasn't Jesus. It wasn't the disciples. It's the servants who took some of the water out presumably in a, in a drawing cup or something, some kind of a scoop or something they had, and they took it to the master of the feast. Verse 8, it says they took it. And by the way, the Bible doesn't really tell us when the, the water was changed to wine. It doesn't tell us. Was it changed to wine in the water pots? Was it changed to wine after he scooped it up and he was taking it? to the master of the ceremony? Or 
Did it change to wine as he was sipping the water and it miraculously it just turned to wine? We don't know. It doesn't tell us. I would argue it's probably the first one in the water pots. Why? Because it kind of mentions their size. It wouldn't be important if it wasn't all wine there. The point the Bible is trying to, to make here in mentioning the size of the water pots is that it changed the entire thing to wine. It changed the entire pot of water to wine. An absolute <coughs> miracle. And the method of Jesus revealed the supernatural circumstances of this miracle. What an incredible thing. It happened. It happened just this way. He who flung the, the, the world into existence by the word of his, his mouth has no problem changing water to wine. None whatsoever. You remember back in, in John chapter 1, verse 17, the, the, the verse there says the law came, fry, came by Moses. Remember that? The law came by Moses. It's interesting, the first miracle of Moses was changing water to blood. Remember that? Well, the first miracle of Jesus Christ, because grace and truth came by Jesus Christ, was changing water into wine. The water was used in purification of the Old Testament law. And Jesus himself teaches in the gospel about a new wine that he would bring. That was the gospel of grace in Christ Jesus. See, it's not significant that he would take the water of purification used under the Old Testament law and change it into wine. Even in a, in a symbolic gesture, he told people what he was going to do. The Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he's what? He's a new creation. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. I believe a lot of us need to experience this new wine of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a fabulous illustration. And when you look at John 2 and you examine what he did, you see the, the safeguard by, that he, he took that anybody could accuse him of using sleight of hand or trickery. It's totally taken away. Well, the fourth thing here, the master of the feast revealed the special content of the wine. Verses 9 and 10. Now, we've got to talk about this. You may agree with me, you may not, I don't know. I'm not legalistic on this. But, with that being said, um, let me say this. Whether you drink alcoholic beverages or not is not an issue of whether or not you're going to heaven. Let's get that right up front. Now, if I'm wrong, I feel sorry for those of you that do drink alcoholic I don't think I am. I don't think we get to heaven by doing things or not doing things. We're saved by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the fact that he arose from the dead and I'm going to heaven because I believe in those facts and I've committed my life to him regardless of whether I drink alcoholic beverages or not. With that being said, the second thing I'd like to share with you is drunkenness is all classified as a sin in the Bible. Always, without a doubt, there's no exceptions. In the Old Testament, in the New Testament, it's a sin to get drunk, to become intoxicated with alcohol. So don't use this text in John, oh, they had wine at the wedding, that means we can go get drunk. No, the Bible's not saying that. You have no proof 
text whatsoever if that's your belief. Number three, I just want to point out, when we look at what the master of the feast tasted, it says in verse 9, he tasted it and he didn't know where it came from. He was kind of confused. The servants knew where it came from, but he didn't know. And so what's he do? He calls the bridegroom. And he said to the bridegroom, hey, every man at the beginning sets out this kind of wine, this new wine. The good wine, the best wine, whatever your translation says. You do that first. And when people have drunk freely, it doesn't mean they got drunk. That's just using the word drunk as drinking, okay? It means everyone had a couple glasses of this. Then the poor wine comes out after you drink the good wine. But you have kept the good wine until now, he says. And by the way, the rabbis condemned drunkenness at weddings. That was a condemnation. They are not drunk. It says after they had drunk a number of things, doesn't mean they were drunk, to read the Bible carefully, but after you had several glasses or cups, sips of wine, then you can bring out that which is inferior. But you kept the good wine until now. You kind of reversed the order here. Well, here's, here's the issue, folks, okay? The issue is the good wine alcoholic. Is it filled with alcohol? Is it highly fermented? Or is it pure grape juice? That's the issue. And that issue affects a lot of things. Well, when you talk about good wine, it says here, the wine that tasted delicious. Uh, the taste of pure grape juice. Regardless of your view on whether you drink alcohol or not, that's not really important to me. What's true is that, that wine is good wine is that which tastes delicious, and the taste that is delicious is that of pure grape juice according to ancient times. It did not say it was pure grape juice, although that's a lot of people's view. I'm telling you that the good wine and its taste, that's why they called it good wine. It tastes like pure grape juice. Remember this word for wine, oinos in the Greek. It refers to the grape before the juice comes out. Oinos. It refers to the grape before the juice comes out. It refers to the juice that comes out of it. When they drop it into the wine vat, it refers to the whole alcoholic process all the way to even the hard liquor stuff that they would throw out. Nobody would taste that because it was forbidden. Now, we all have decided which phase of the wine is under discussion here, but um, all I can tell you is the good wine refers to the taste that is delicious, that of pure grape juice. Secondly, in that time, wine was not mixed with grain or water in the processing of it. Good wine also is never mixed with any kind of, of grains to ferment it. They never did that. So all I know is whatever good wine is, they haven't put any grain into it to make it any kind of stronger alcoholic content. 
the third thing, wine was not, it was not old or highly fermented. As a matter of fact, did you know the Bible condemns highly fermented wine? It condemns it. In Proverbs 20, verse 1, the Bible says, Wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Now, we're all in the body of Christ, and we're going to agree to disagree and still love each other. Amen. This isn't something I'm being legalistic in. It's just that some people believe in total abstinence. Other people believe you can have a snort of wine once in a while, whatever, whatever your heart convicts you of. But if, if someone disagrees with you on drinking alcohol, that doesn't mean they're legalistic. I mean, all you have to do is look at around at our society. And you look at what alcohol does to our society. I don't think it's a good thing. If you want to argue that with me, let's go down to the rescue mission and, and some homeless shelters and we'll see what's destroying people's lives. It's drugs, it's alcohol, destroying families, destroying marriages. Why would we want to even entertain anything like that that would have that kind of an adverse effect on people, especially as Christians? So we have to stop and we have to be honest with ourselves and I just want to read one more text with you. I'm not here to convince you not to have any wine. I mean, I use wine when I cook, things like that. But at the same time, I think you have to be careful with anything alcoholic. Now, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this. Strong drink, like liquor, is strictly forbidden throughout the text of Scripture. And I know there's a lot of new, you know, reform guys that are smoking their drinking their whiskey and thinking, oh, this is what the reformers did. Well, I, I disagree with that. I think that that's not honoring to the Lord. I don't, I don't think you could, that's going to help you grow in your relationship to the Lord. But people who care know what I'm talking about. When you deal with people with broken homes and broken families and try to put them back together and you see a common thread, a common denominator of alcohol as the problem. Why would we not call it a problem? One last text here about this, Proverbs 23. Turn over there, Proverbs 23, and look at verses 29 to 35. And I'll just read this, and it's self-explanatory pretty much. Proverbs 23, beginning in verse 29. says, Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Well, who is it? Verse 30 tells us. Those who tarry long over wine. Those who go to try mixed wine, which is the stronger drink. He says, do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things. In your heart, utter perverse things. Amen to that. If you've ever had too much wine to drink in your life, you, you can say amen to that. If you've ever been drunk, you can say amen to that. Your eyes see strange things and you say things that probably you wouldn't say if you weren't drunk. Verse 34, you will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of the mast. Verse 35, they struck me, but I was not hurt. They beat me. But I did not feel it. <laughs> when shall I awake? 
I must have another drink. <laughs> to me, that's, that's a very, very graphic description of an alcoholic, <laughs> frankly, of someone who has an issue with alcohol. So the one thing we know about the good and the best wine at the, at the marriage feast here of, of Cana of Galilee was that it was not mixed at all to make it stronger. One of the things we know rabbis insisted at the, at the at the weddings as well as the Passover, all celebrations for that matter, um, is that when they would use wine at these ceremonies, they wouldn't mix it with something to make it stronger. They would actually dilute it. It was recommended that they would dilute it with three parts of water. Three parts of water to wine at any stage to prevent the possibility of any fermentation problem or any alcoholic problem. Sometimes people say, well, why don't you serve wine at your communion? You serve grape juice. Well, I, I think that's what they had. They had grape juice. And I would never serve an alcoholic beverage in church. Because I don't know who's going to be drinking that alcohol. I don't know if one of you are an alcoholic, recovered alcoholic. And uh, thanks for the snort there, Pastor. Now I'm back on the, fell off the wagon. <laughs> Praise the Lord for communion. I'll be back next month. You know, yeah, no, we don't want to go there. And some people even go as far as to look at Paul's advice to Timothy in, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23, and say, oh, take a little wine for your stomach's infirmities. He's not referring to fermented wine there. Any Jewish doctor will tell you that. The alcoholic process goes on the, as, it, as it goes on with the wine, the actual nutritional value of the juice is diminished. That's what fermentation is. It's a process of decay. And what they still recommend, even today in Israel, if you have stomach issues, what do they tell you to do? They say, if you want to heal it naturally, drink some pure grape juice. Pure grape juice. It's far more nutritional value than wine. So the Bible gives us no sympathy, no encouragement for drinking alcoholic beverages. Like I said, not legalistic on this, just saying, I want to be honest with the text. And so the master of this feast revealed that the special content of this good wine, and you know what, the punchline here is obviously that a miracle, uh, it was a miracle before everybody who attended this wedding. There's no way that they could have processed this amount of wine this quickly if it was a, the fermented wine value and everything. They couldn't have go out. They'd have to go to the vineyards, get the grapes, go to the vat, let it squeeze, let it set. There's no way. That's why they're shocked at all this. How did, how did this happen? How did this water turn into this juice? It astonished them. They knew it couldn't have been just a little exchange, sleight of hand. It had to be a miracle. And that's the final thing here. The miracle of changing the water into wine revealed the spiritual character of our Lord to his disciples. In verse 11 of chapter 2, look at what it says. This, the first of his signs. The first of his signs. They knew exactly what was taking place. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And what does it say? And the disciples what? Believed him. That word signs is, is used upwards of 17 times throughout 
the Gospel of John. In John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, it even tells us, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you have life in his name. So you read there in verse 11 that he did his first sign, this first miracle at this wedding at Cana of Galilee, this little insignificant, small little town. This is where he chose to manifest his glory. Look back at verse 14 of chapter 1. It tells us there, John says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have what? Seen his what? Glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So he manifested his glory through this miracle. And then if you look down at John chapter 2, verse 22, it says, When therefore he was raised from the dead, verse, uh, verse 22, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Well, you could say, well, well, which is it? Did they become born-again believers in John 2.11, or was it after the resurrection? Which one was it? Well, Mark tells us, Mark 16.14, this is the night before Jesus arose from the dead. It says in verse 14, afterward he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table. And listen, Verse 14 says, he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had raised. Matter of fact, the Bible says at the time of the cross, when Jesus hung on the cross, where did the disciples go? They fled. (laughs) They all fled. Well, when did the disciples become followers or become believers, I should say, in Christ? Well, in the sense of what we understand being born again and true believers today, they were not saved until after the resurrection. They were not saved. They couldn't have been saved until after the resurrection. They didn't receive the Spirit until after the resurrection. But did they believe that he was the Son of God, that he was the Messiah? Yeah, they believed it. But they didn't understand everything. They didn't know about the death and the resurrection. Later on, when Jesus revealed it to them, they tried what they tried to do. Did they say, okay, now we get it? You know, they tried to stop him. <laughs> they said, no, you're not going to go to Jerusalem and die. What are you talking about? See, they wanted a Messiah to set up an earthly kingdom and overthrow Rome. That's what they were looking for. But they believed here by seeing the miracle that he was the one. He was the Messiah. His disciples believed in him at this moment. They just did not know everything we know today. They didn't have all the information of the New Testament. But they saw his glory and it says that they believed in him. My question for you is, do you believe in him? (laughs) Do you believe as they did? Can you say this morning that you believe reading this story, this account of Scripture where the Lord changed water into wine, that He is the Messiah, that He is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Do you believe that only God could perform that kind of miracle in front of those people? All those witnesses would have seen it, no doubt about it. He manifested His glory. And He was telling everyone He's something other 
than anything they've ever seen before. What a miracle was done. I'll leave you with this. You know, he who changed that water to wine, he can change you right here, right now. He can turn your life upside down in a good way. Maybe here, here this morning you're listening to this message and you're, you're running away from God. You're, you're going the opposite way. You're going the way you want to go. You're doing what you want to do. You know what? God's power can turn you around and turn you straight towards the Lord. No doubt about it. And the Bible says, as I've already spoken, if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We all need to be changed. We all need to be transformed because we're all born in sin. There's not a person here who's not a sinner. But we also need to be forgiven of that sin. We need to be taken from darkness to light, from death to light. life. We need to be changed by the one who could change water into wine. Father, we pray today Lord, as we close in prayer, we hope and we trust that most people here this morning are in a personal relationship with your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that they have come to believe that he is everything that he claimed to be. God, I pray for those who may be hearing this message even now who are not sure. (laughs) Maybe they're sitting here, they don't know if they died right now, if they'd go straight to heaven as the Bible promises. Or if Jesus would come back, that they'd be ready to meet him in the air. Lord, we pray this morning that, they, that you, you would open up their hearts by the Holy Spirit. You would open up their hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ. That they would understand their need of a Savior. That they would put their faith, their trust, in him who died for our sins. And not only died, but rose again, that we might live with him forever. God, help us to turn to you before it's too late. If you're here this morning and you've yet to put your faith, your trust in Christ, I pray that you would cry out to him even now, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me from my sin. You pray that with a sincere heart. He will answer that prayer. And he will transform you just like he transformed that water into wine. We thank you, pray for our fellowship time across the way, and pray bless the food of our bodies as well. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.